Hello, I'm Clement Paligaru, and welcome to Ear to Asia, where we talk with researchers who focus on the region with its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. Ear to Asia is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In this episode, saving the songs of the Yangtze. When one thinks of China's 21st century megacities with their crowds and congestion, their glitz and cutting-edge technologies, it's Shanghai that typically first comes to mind. Shanghai sits at the mouth of the Yangtze River, the longest river in China and indeed all of Asia. Except for a brief period in the 20th century, Shanghai and its hinterland have made up the wealthiest region of China. But before the advent of high-speed trains and the network of motorways that resulted from economic reforms begun only four decades ago, Shanghai's hinterland was a fabric of rice paddies punctuated with numerous rivers, streams and lakes. The peoples of this region, although ethnically Han Chinese, had their own languages, folklore and moral code. That culture has all but disappeared in the wake of China's relentless march to modernization. In this episode of Ear to Asia, we speak with Chinese literature expert Anne McLaren about her research into what she calls the folk ecology of the Lower Yangtze Delta, including the folk songs of this fascinating region. And she explains how these vanishing oral traditions shed light into how people of a bygone era lived. Anne McLaren is Professor of Chinese Literature at the University of Melbourne and is based at Asia Institute. Anne, welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Let's set up the landscape first. Now, the Yangtze River is the third longest river in the world. It begins in the Tibetan Plateau and flows in an easterly direction. And then the Yangtze empties into the China Sea right after passing through the metropolis of Shanghai. Your research looks into the oral traditions of the peoples of the lower Yangtze Delta. So tell us about the geography, the landscape of this region before this era of industrialization, urbanization and development. Well, if you can imagine a giant bowl about, oh, how many miles away from Shanghai and at the edges you have paddies, rice paddy fields. The giant bowl is where Lake Tai is. So Lake Tai is south of the Yangtze River. It's the third largest freshwater lake in China. It provides water for living and eating and fish for millions of people living around the shores of Lake Tai. This is the major sea of water that you find in this region, as well as the Yangtze River. As well as that, you find tributaries and canals and you'd see a wonderful chessboard of interlocking waterways. That's how it used to be. This was the China that I saw from a train window, a slow train window, when I first came to China in the 1970s. I'd look out, both sides would be rice paddies. Rice paddies are set in very low-lying fields. They're full of water, full of mud. And by the side, there would be fairly simple cottages, walkways, and people would be taking themselves around the waterways by boat. So I didn't see the highways and the railways then. So what does this region look like now? Well, these days you can go out from Shanghai on the Gautier, which is the high rapid rail, which could take you in very rapid transit an hour or two and you're in Wuxi or Suzhou or Hangzhou or any of the numeral townships dotting the area. It's very advanced. Now, many people outside China think of China as an ethnically homogenous nation with a single language, Mandarin or Putonghua. 
What language did the people of the Lower Yangtze speak? The people of the Lower Yangtze still speak one or more variant of a language grouping called the Wu Wu Yu in Chinese W U language, and this is one of the six major language groupings found in South China. The big divide in Chinese geography is along the Yangtze River between the north and the south. So Wu Yu is one of the six southern very big language groupings, and、uh, there are approximately eighty million native speakers of Wu Yu.、Uh, Shanghainese is a variant of this. Your work, though, delves beyond the spoken word. It does. So, in your current research, you study folk songs of the region, song cycles in particular. Yes. What are song cycles? Well, a song cycle is a group of songs attached to a particular figure. Often the figure is someone that the singer believes to have been a real historical person who lived in the region in the past, and for various reasons this person is a hero, or sometimes they can be a victim that you might feel sorry for. But they're very special; they've had a very special life outcome, and a group of songs attach themselves to this individual. And where were these songs performed? The songs were sung by everyone in the village, so. Generally speaking, you wouldn't find them on a stage. They were sung during labour in a village, for example. Just about everyone would be able to sing something. You'd learn how to sing a song from your mother's knee when you went into the rice paddy. You'd be working with a group of people, and you'd very likely sing a song about how to plant the rice seedlings, which you've nurtured carefully. You want to plant them in a row, and you would start off with one line. Your friend working with you would start the second line, the third person, the third line, and then the fourth one. Most of the songs are in stanzas of four, and they could readily be sung by four people. There were refrains as well from a chorus, so the labouring songs were sung by farm labourers, ordinary people, men and women, men and women. And it's interesting in the 19th century, landlords noticed that their workers in the rice fields worked harder if they had teams of folk singers. And so they would hire the local farmers who had the best songs and train them up in the longer songs, and they would sing in the field. So that was one thing. There were song competitions, and there's not a lot of flat land in this area, so they were direct stages on poles over the waterways, and people would come in their boats and they'd sit there and they'd watch people sing in competitions, competing to sing the best songs, the most interesting songs, and the longer songs. And this is one reason why we have long songs now from the Yangtze Delta. And what were the themes that came through, and what did they sing about? They sang about mythical figures from the past. For example, the story of Shunqi Ge, who is a figure who they believed lived in a mysterious lake called Dongting, right in the heart of Great Lake Tai. And he went to this island, this magical island. He learned how to sing folk songs from the birds. So birdsong taught him how to sing. And there was a Taoist magician who taught him how to grow rice. Especially the daughter taught him how to grow rice. He brought these skills back—the singing and the rice planting—back to his homeland on the banks of Lake Tai and taught his people how to grow rice. This is one of the most popular song cycles of the region. And you've recorded a rice planting song, which is sung by two conservators, I understand. Yes. And we'll, we'll play an excerpt in a moment, but please tell us about this song. Well, this song is the type of song that was sung in the rice paddy field. So here we are to imagine you have row upon row of rice planters, knee deep in mud, bending over in the hot sun, inserting the rice seedlings, and as they do this backbreaking work, 
they are singing a rhythmical song. So this is known as planting of the rice shoots, and they'd be singing it in twos or in threes or in fours. Well, let's hear some of this. And that's a rice planting song of the lower Yangtze River region of China, which is among songs Chinese literature expert Professor Anne McLaren is researching. And this one, you can feel, even though it's not done by the original singers, you feel that passion coming through. The voices are soaring there. So how were these song lines passed down? Because this is an oral tradition then, isn't it? Well, there were often different forms of them, and most were quite short. Most were fairly episodic. Just supposing if you take a long song cycle where you're talking about a love scandal, there are lots of love scandals in this, and they love gossiping about, oh, who's having an affair today, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. But there'd usually be one favourite episode, and so most people would know that favourite episode. But a singer who was a bit more talented or who made it his or her job to learn more could sing thousands of lines could tell you what happened after that and how they were punished or did they flee? Did they manage to get away from the forces that were out to punish them? What happened in the end? Mm. So some people chose to provide, offer very long song cycles, people with the good voices who kept people entertained. But just about everyone knew something, even a stanza or two. So these are songs sung by everybody, not just by specialist singers. And the way it would have been passed down and passed on because you've got surrounding villages, transportation and the proximity of people and communities. Tell me about that. I mean, how did the older modes of transportation influence the development of these regions' oral traditions? Well, two things were very important. One was the transportation by boat along the waterways. This was the most important way that you could travel from A to B. You either walked along the narrow paths, as I did when I was there in the 1990s, when they hadn't built the highways, or you went by boat, and the boats tended to be very slow. There's a lot of mud, there was sludge, and so on. They were always dredging up the waterways. So singing by boat was a very important medium of transmission. If you were a ferryman or a ferrywoman, you would keep your passengers entertained with the wonderful songs. The other um, way that the songs were transmitted actually is by married women, because in China, uh, women were married out of the family and almost invariably married to another village somewhere else. And when they were married out to that village, they would bring their songs with them. So you can trace where the songs go by the boats and by the marriages. 
So how much is the natural environment actually portrayed in the songs of the region? Well, there's a very intimate link between them. For example, there's a whole subcategory of songs known as boating songs. They're all about people in boats doing things. And often it's young men looking at the windows as they pass, looking out for lovely young ladies that they can chat up. But the rhythm of the song matches the rhythm of the rocking movement that's required when you move that boat along because the rudder was a rocking motion. The songs had a very intimate relationship with the, the movement through the water. Actually, prostitutes used to also ply their trade on the waterways, and sometimes they were ferry people, and they'd sing rather sexy songs on the water. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Ear to Asia, brought to you by the Asia Institute, and our guest on this episode is Chinese literature expert Anne McLaren, with us to discuss her research into the linguistic traditions of Shanghai's hinterland that are on the brink of extinction as a result of China's incredibly rapid modernization. Now let's move on to one of these songs that you're referring to, and one that I understand is quite well known is called The Fifth Daughter. And we'll hear an excerpt of a recording of this song in a bit. But first, tell us about this song. Well, Fifth Daughter may well have lived in the mid-19th century. The singers, the audience, all believe she's a real woman. She is orphaned. She's living with her older brother. He's married. And his wife is in charge of everyone, including her and she's not a very nice person. So she's living with a rather brutal and nasty sister-in-law, and her parents, who would normally look after her and cherish her, have died. And she's sent to do a lot of housework, and part of the housework includes taking lunch out to the workers in the fields. And it's here that she aspires a very handsome young hired hand. So here's a young man who's been brought in from a neighbouring area. He's poor, he doesn't own land, and he's working for hire. She gives him lunch, and they spark up a love interest, and she's quite active in pursuing this, and she falls pregnant, and that's when disaster strikes, when the sister-in-law finds out. And usually what happens, uh, sadly, in these circumstances in the mid-19th century would be that the young woman concerned would be bullied into taking her own life, and this is indeed one of the variants that you find in the story. There are very sad and very grim episodes where there's a noose hanging in a barn and she's being locked into the barn. And then there are other episodes where the older brother is instigated by the sister-in-law, urged and egged on to the point where he says, well, you've got a choice. Here's a knife, you can cut your throat, and here's a rope, you can hang yourself. So it is quite tragic as well. It is tragic. They're, la- they're, they're based on love, you know, but but there's tragedy at the end of it's some It's tragedy of because from the singer's point of view, this is a real person, it's a real story, and it doesn't have a happy ending generally. A lot of the early work in capturing and preserving the fifth daughter folk song seems to be centred around the rendition by one singer, and that's Lou Armey. Tell us about her. Fortunately, we know quite a lot about her. She had a great voice, and she was the singer of the longest version of this song, who could sing up to about 3,000 lines. She learned her song from her father, and she was born in the early 1900s. So her father would have been born in the 1880s, and her father learned it from someone from the 1850s. But she died in her 80s. I didn't get to meet her, but I've read all about her and I know people who knew her. And she was illiterate. She was married into the region of Lusiu, which is on the shores of Lake Fen. Later on, in socialist China, she was a local cleaner at a school. But she transmitted the longest version of this song that we know about. 
when her lengthy version of Fifth Daughter was discovered by folklorists in the early 1980s, there was great excitement. Hers was the first one to be found, in fact. And you mentioned in your writings that this process of learning songs and singing the songs could take almost a year. So can you explain what you mean by that? How did that work? Well, actually, it really could take a lifetime, (laughs) not just a year. One song? Oh, yes. Um, Not many people could sing the longer songs. And certainly by the 1980s and 90s, only a handful could. But we know a lot now about the epical traditions of Yugoslavia, of Finland, of Turkey, of Africa. And people who are not literate do not rely on written records, but they rely on memory tactics in their brain to encode, record, remember, create, compose vast epical songs. And this sort of phenomenon is known around the world we don't know much about the Han Chinese and their folk epics. I hope to make it much better known. Okay, well, let's listen to one version of this song. <laughs> And that's Fifth Daughter, a folk song of the lower Yangtze River in China. Professor Anne McLaren, can you please tell us a little about this rendition of Fifth Daughter? Well, first of all, I'm having lunch and we've been drinking some rice wine. We've had some lovely hot food. And suddenly one of the singers pushes the table away, gets up and starts singing just like that, you know, without any buy your leave. And he's singing Fifth Daughter. He's singing the opening stanzas there, uh, one of the favourite sections. It's where Fifth Daughter goes out to the field and meets the man that she'll fall in love with, Artien. Always the best bit. Always the best bit. Where they fall in love. Where they fall in love, yeah. Now you've explained the context there and the meaning. What are your sources of this information? Well, apart from some videotapes which I've made of singers who I've met, my major source especially for the older, more authentic songs, comes from transcripts made in the 1980s and 1990s. And many of these are available in mimeographed form for limited circulation. I have some of these. These are often very important. And a number have been published in volumes of the cultural treasures from the region. So there are quite a few approaches used there to capture this. While working on this, did you pick up any problems in the way the transcripts were gathered or compiled? The kind of problems that people face with conservation of folkloric artefacts around the world is that you want to preserve something that can be rendered special and appropriate for a national audience. And sometimes things that come from the people can be a bit embarrassing. (laughs) And this is really true of these love songs because the original singers Um, when they had the opportunity, when they were just singing to their friends, would put in juicy bits about, you know, how the lovers had a bath together or how she lured him into the bath. 
their lovemaking and things like that, which when you're transcribing and editing and publishing something for a national audience, even for kids at school, you might think, well, I don't really want that bit, do I? So there are various things in the editing process that were cut out, that were bowlerized. And yet the people who wrote these songs included these aspects of life and romance and the like. Were the peoples of this region quite uninhibited about their sexuality and expression? Look, I really think that the elites of the region were embarrassed at the vulgarity of the ordinary people of the region. And for this reason, I think they overlooked a lot of these songs. They've only come into their own in the 1980s as a part of the regional culture of war, but it has been at a cost. They feel they have to get rid of the embarrassing bits, the obscene bits as they see them, although they're not really that obscene, and the superstitious parts that deal with faith systems. And my own feeling as a Western scholar is that I don't have to be bound by strictures like that. So I'm always going to aim at bringing out the entire song cycle. And yet what's remarkable is the inclusion of these aspects of life and the stories um, ran parallel to a time of Confucianist morality. How is it that that happened and that there was limited influence of Confucianism on this community? It's interesting. Um, When we Western scholars and when Chinese scholars examine Confucianism in late imperial China, for example, we always assume that these ideas, Confucian ideas, you know, of morality, how to act in the family and a rigid hierarchy in the kinship system, we always assume that it trickled down to everybody. But in reality, the ordinary people had their own system and code of morality. And some interesting things that I have found when I've gone into the villages, when I've looked at the songs, is that we often think of a Confucian patriarchy, but inside the households, It's women against women. It's women in charge and it's women who are victims of other women, which is not a very nice thing to think about, but is something which I've noticed in laments, funeral laments, bridal laments and in the long songs of the region. What inspired you to make the study of Chinese languages, the songs and the like, you know, part of your life's work? Well, I find the songs really quite beautiful not just how they sound, but also the words. And so I'm trying to make those words come alive for a Western audience. And I wonder if I can conclude by a stanza, reading out a stanza about Lake Tai, which I particularly like. So I'm now going to read out from my translation one of the opening stanzas from the song about Shinchi Ge, who brought rice cultivation to the lower Yangtze Delta. Most people would be singing near water, so it's natural that they would be thinking of water when they start a long song. So they're going to start with a big body of water, then they're going to the Yangtze River, then they're going to move to Lake Tai, where they're probably standing, and then they're going to move to one of the little bays where they live. So this is one of the opening stanzas of the story of Shinchi Ge. The Yangtze River flows east night after day. A huge dragon in the east flickers and vanishes. Taihu Lake gleams white as silver, like a sparkling pearl shining brightly. Lake Tai is broad and vast, blue-green, pure and bright. Sky meets water, cloud follows cloud. The sun shines on the jade-green water as golden fins bob up. Seventy-two peaks suddenly emerge and vanish, come into view, then fade from sight. I love these songs. This song conveys not just the majesty and beauty of Lake Tai, But it also conveys its magical quality. It's like a huge dragon, and dragons in China live in rivers, 
have long fishy tails. The waves are pure and gleam blue-green. The lake is vast. You see the horizon where sky meets water. is full of fish, hence the golden fins. And fish is, of course, vital to the life of the people here. And then there are the hills and the peaks you can see in the water. I have visited Lake Tai many times, but what we see today is something quite different to what we hear in this song. So Lake Tai is China's third largest freshwater lake. Industrial runoff has made it highly polluted. In fact, in May in 2007, a very bad algal bloom erupted that made the water undrinkable and greatly affected the two million people in the nearby town of Wuxi. So this is one of the reasons why I want to make these wonderful songs known in the modern day. It sounds all very straightforward, but what have been some of the greatest challenges that you have faced when it comes to you know, this area of research? People like myself, I trained as a sinologist. My original work was in fiction, writings of the final dynasties. The greatest problem really is that we, we think of China and we ignore the regions. We think of China as being monolithic, as having one written language. We don't realise that China is really like Europe. It has many different regions. It has enormous environmental variants. Too often, sinologists, people in China studies, look at China and just see one country when what you should be seeing is a whole civilization. Professor Anne McLaren, it's been a pleasure having you on Ear to Asia. Such insights and such fascinating stories you've had for us today. Many thanks for joining us. Thank you. We've been speaking with Anne McLaren, who is Professor of Chinese Literature at the University of Melbourne and is based at Asia Institute. Anne's research focuses on the literature and oral traditions of China. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And if you've enjoyed this or other episodes of this podcast series, it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating and write a review in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2017, the University of Melbourne. I'm Clement Paligaro. Thanks for your company and bye for now. <laughs>